So tonight I, I wanted to look at Psalm 51. This is one of my favorite psalms, uh, mainly because I'm a sinner, and this reminds me of the hope that I have. I, I love this psalm. I love David's heart in this. There's so much that I can uh, relate to as David uh, says these things to, um, to, to, to God. This is right after he has realized his sin uh, with, with Bathsheba and his remorse for that. And he is turning to God for forgiveness. He's turning to God saying, you know, messed up. And I, I need you. I, I, I need you. I, I need to lean into your character right now. I need to know that, uh, that the hope that I have and who you are, the hope that uh, the things that I know about your character are true. I need to, I need to be able to lean into that. And so we're going to look at that tonight. We're going to look at the first 10, 10 12 verses of Psalm 51 and, and just unpack what David is saying and what does this mean for us today. So let's, let's look at this. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Verse one, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So David appeals to the unfailing love of God as the basis of hope for forgiveness. And although he's failed through sin, God does not fail, because, but, but he continues in his commitment to sinful humans. Uh, he acknowledges their sin, and, 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 and those that acknowledge their sin and they rely on God's merciful forgiveness and love can come to him in the hope that they have. So David uses phrases like, have mercy, blot out, wash, cleanse, which opens up this language that, that's gonna run throughout the rest of the psalm. He continues to use this, and we're gonna see a chiastic structure in, in the book of, or in this uh, Psalm 51 here. What's interesting is that the way, way he's using these phrases causes them to be grounded in the essential character of God's being. I want you to understand that. The way that David is using this, he's grounding them in who God is and the character of who God is. So what he knows about God, what he believes to be true about God, he's leaning into that and he's using words um, that, that are really being built around what he knows of the character of God. He says, according to your steadfast love, your abundant mercy. So he says, God, I believe that your love is steadfast. I believe that your, your mercy is abundant. I believe that this is who you are, and this is why I'm coming to you the way that I'm coming to you. I've sinned. I'm broken. I'm messed up. I, I, I regret what I've done. I've failed you. Not only have I failed you, I've failed Bathsheba. i failed her husband, Uriah. So David understands that his forgiveness and his restoration is completely dependent on the character of God. Have you ever thought about that? Like in the midst of your sin and, and us realizing our sin, because I, I think most of us, in the, even in the midst of our sin, we realize we're sinning. But in the realization of what we've done and the offense that we've, we, we, we've done, do we come to God and realize that our forgiveness is based on his character? Like we are dependent on the character of God. And it's very important for us to understand who God is because we can't understand the hope that we have. We can't understand the mercy of God without believing that he is a merciful God. All David is able to do here is offer his sin. He has no means to forgive. He has no means to offer himself mercy. He has no means to pardon himself. He says, God, all, all I have is my sin. And I'm giving you my sin in hopes that what I believe about you is true. 
He's seeking cleansing from his transgressions, his iniquity, his guilt, and his sin. And these are three words that are often used throughout the Bible to describe acts against God and humanity. So he uses the phrase blot out. Literally in his mind, he's thinking, God, if you're keeping a record of my wrongs, please remove these from my record. Don't judge me by these sins. Blot them out, erase them as if they didn't happen. That's what I'm asking you to do. Because I know that these sins bring me death. These sins bring me destruction. And if you don't remove them from my record, I am surely doomed. When the Holy Spirit opens my eyes to my sin and how my sin affects others, I realize that I am in desperate need of redemption. Like David, I I feel, I realize that I am in desperate need of restoration and renewal. And I want to run to God and ask for his grace according to his faithful love and his abundant compassion. Listen to this. Forgiveness is an act of divine grace whereby sin is blotted out and the sinner is cleansed by the washing away of sins. That's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is an act of of divine grace whereby sin is blotted out. Remember what we just said about that. It means it never, as if it never happened, and the sinner is cleansed by the washing away of sin, that God removes that from our record. When we are forgiven by God and his grace through the gospel, through the power of the gospel, our sin is as if it never happened. Because if, if our sin happened, if our sin is there and it's on our record, we are surely dead. But because of the power of the gospel and what Christ did, he erases our sin by his blood. And why don't we run to God when we sin? Why is our response after we sin is often to run away or to hide or to say, God, I can't be in your presence. I can't show my face to you. Why? Because I think that we don't often believe that what the Bible says about who God is is true. That the God that we see here will respond differently to my sin somehow. That if I come to him in confession that he's gonna destroy me, that he's got this lightning bolt ready for me, and when I expose myself to him, when I step into the light, he's gonna destroy me. And that's not what the scriptures tell us about the character of God. And so David is able to come before God in his realization of his sin and say, God, I need your forgiveness. You're a holy God. And I don't deserve to stand in your presence, but you've welcomed me into your presence, knowing that I'm a broken man, knowing that I'm sinful. And I need your grace. I am desperate for your mercy. Blot this sin from my record. And that's what Christ has done for us. Forgiveness is an act of divine grace whereby sin is blotted out and the sinner is cleansed by the washing away of sins. Look at verse three. He says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. He says, I know my transgressions. David doesn't simply express awareness of his sin, 
with these words, but he expresses remorse, sorrow, a commitment not to repeat the offense. Like he's not just saying, hey, God, I'm, I'm a sinner. I realize I'm a sinner. He says, God, I realize the weight of my sin. I realize the gravity of my sin, that my sin is not just against you, but it's against Bathsheba. It's against her husband. My, my sin is serious. And I don't want to do it anymore. I want to repent. I don't want to just say that I'm a sinner. I don't want to just come before you and say, well, I screwed up again. I want to come before you and say, God, I am truly sorry. And this is truly not the life that I want to live. And I know it's not the life that you desire for me. He says that you may be justified in your words. So unlike Job, David freely acknowledges the justice of divine accusation. He says God has proved right and justified. So once again, as often is with the Psalms, God is seen as both the accuser who's bringing the charge, he says, when you speak, and the judge who's rendering the verdict, he says, so when you judge. So God is the accuser and the judge. And this is what David is realizing. He's realizing justice and mercy is all in your hands. He says, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. So David is contrasting himself with God's righteousness. God, you alone are righteous. I am a sinner. I was born a sinner. Sin is in me. It is deep within my roots. It's deep within my family's roots. I can't get away from it. You are righteous. I am not. I need to lean into your righteousness. He is different from God. He's contrasting his righteousness or his unrighteousness to God's righteousness. He acknowledges that he has a long-standing sinful nature. It has a far-reaching influence in his life. This is an honest self-evaluation. David has a lot of self-awareness here. He isn't minimizing his sin, but he's acknowledging that he has a lust for sin that is only redeemed through the character of God. He said, sin is so influential in my life and is so far-reaching into my life that the only way that it can be removed is by the power of God. He's acknowledging, God, I have to lean into you because I can't fix this. I can't fix myself. I can't get rid of my sin nature. I can't just throw it off by myself. But I need your power. He's not giving any excuses. He's not shifting blame. He's giving a full confession of his own guilt and a confession that he deserves God's judgment. He says, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. So in his expressions of the self-awareness, David exhibits the kind of transparency that God desires. He wants truth in the inner parts. This word that he uses here emphasizes reliability and trustworthiness over absolute accuracy. In other words, God is seeking a person whose external profession is consistent with the inner reality of his or her being that is often kept hidden away in the inner parts. I think this is part of what it means to come and worship in spirit and in truth. To worship is who you are, understanding who you are, understanding that we walk into this place and, and it's okay to acknowledge and confess that you're a sinner. It's okay to not be okay. It's okay to realize that you're broken and in desperate need of a savior. 
And that's what David is, is realizing here. And this is what God desires from David and he desires from us. This is stop pretending like you're not a sinner. You are a sinner. You're broken. There is something that has divided your relationship between me and yourself. And God desires us to be honest about that. Like we, we don't expect you to walk into this place and be perfect. But we often walk into this place and pretend like there's nothing wrong. Pastors are guilty of this. I'll be the first to tell you, I still don't understand why God does not strike me dead every time I stand on the stage. But it's only in his mercy and his character that I wake up the next morning. I heard Vody Bauckham. I hope I get this right. I didn't write this down. It just was random. Somebody was asking him a question, why, does bad, why do bad things happen to good people in the world? And he said, I'm not gonna answer that. I said, why not? Because you're asking the question wrong. So the question really is, why does God not strike me dead today? Knowing the things that I've thought today, knowing the actions that I've committed, knowing the things that I've said about other people, knowing what I've done, the correct question is, why am I still breathing? Why does God choose to show me that mercy? I want to be sober of my sinfulness. While our past, our story, it, it might be a helpful ex explanation of why we do certain things. It's never an excuse to do it. My wife is, is a therapist. She's, she's got a psychology degree and, and, and is a therapist, and she'll be the first to tell you that there are very real clinical issues in people's minds. And that may explain why we do a lot of things, but it still does not excuse our sin. And it still does not move us any further away from our desperation for a savior. Many of us have rough childhoods and difficult pasts with our parents or friends or just growing up in general. And a lot of those things have affected our relationships today and a lot of those things have affected our emotions and, and the way that we think about, the th about things in the world. And it may explain why we do and react certain ways to certain things, but it never excuses sinful behavior. David acknowledges God's just prerogative to, to judge his guilt. And it's only then when he admits his guilt that he raises the white flag of retreat, acknowledging that you cannot do it and you need the one who can that we can experience the power of the grace of God and exchange, as Daniel says, blood-tattered rags for robes of righteousness. And our God is a God who does not allow us to remain in the valley of the shadow of death. Look what Psalm 23 says. This is what David writes in Psalm 23, the same guy that's, that's writing Psalm 51. He says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now, Growing up, did you always read that when you were a kid? Like, the Lord is my shepherd and I don't want him to be my shepherd. Like, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He's the shepherd I don't want. That's how I always read it. That's not what David means here. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. I have everything I need right there. That's all I need. There's nothing, I am wanting nothing. 
Was I the only one that did that? I was kind of a dumb kid. (laughs) Verse two, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Notice in Psalm 23 that there's only one time the author actively pursues something whereas every other statement are all passive. Look at verse two. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness. But look at this. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what am I pursuing? The valley of the shadow of death. While God is leading me, to righteousness. He's leading me to the things that my soul needs. He's leading me to the things that my soul desires. It's me who's pursuing the valley of the shadow of death. God is the God who pulled Joseph out of the pit. He's the one who pulled Israel from the furnace of the fire in Egypt. He pulled David from the valley of the shadow of death, Jonah from the belly of the fish. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace, and Daniel from the lion's den, and he pulled Jesus from the grave. And at the cross, Jesus called to you and me out of darkness and into his light. It's us that pursues the darkness. We pursue the valley of death. And the valley of death is not just the tragedies we face. Like oftentimes I read that and say, even though I walk through the valley of the, of the shadows of death, I think, okay, even though I have trials in my life, even though bad things happen, maybe it's a death of a loved one or maybe it's a loss of a job or, or a difficult financial situation or a tough relationship, we, we call those the valley of the shadow of death. But it's even in our sin. It's even when we choose to walk into these valleys. Like we pursue the valley of the shadow of death. It's not just circumstances that happen to come to us because of what other, bring, other people bring on us. The valley of the shadow of death are also the places that we walk into ourselves. And God has no desire to leave us in those places. He has no desire for us to continue to walk into that path. And so he uses means often to pull us out. And often there are things that are difficult for us. Oftentimes come in the form of discipline to get us out because he has no desire for us to go further into the shadow of the death, the places that we pursue. It's God who pulls us out. And so David writes in Psalm 51, verse seven, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. So having confessed his sin, David now seeks the kind of cleansing from its effects that will allow restoration of relationship with God. So the passage ends in verse nine with David's desire that God no longer take account of his sin, therefore allowing his relationship with God to continue. And the passage is marked by the use in reverse order. This is where we see the chiasm here uh, of the same term. So there we saw blot out, wash away, and cleanse. And now we have cleanse, wash, and blot out. 
And so we have this chiastic arrangement of elements. He's using these, these, these phrases to place focus on something very specific. What's most important to David is that he is restored to relationship with God. And so verse seven expresses a, a, another plea for pardon. He says, cleanse me with hyssop. Now this alludes to the imagery of, of what lepers would have to do to be cleansed in, in the temple. Hyssop would be dipped in blood and sprinkled seven times on the leper at the altar. And so David saw himself as a spiritual leper in need of divine cleansing. He was dirty, he was, he was broken, he was not whole. And he says, God, I need you to make me whole. Cleanse me. As a leper needs cleansing in the temple, I need you to cleanse me. So as one would dip blood into hyssop, I need the blood of the lamb on me. David saw himself here as a spiritual leper and the removal of his sin would occur through the shed blood of the coming Messiah. And only then would he be whiter than snow. Look at this reference to hyssop in Exodus 12. We see this when we celebrate the Passover. In Exodus 12, verse 21, it says, Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. So Moses instructs the elders of Israel to take bunches of hyssop and dip them into blood of the Passover lamb and place the blood on the doorpost so that the Lord would spare the firstborn. And this is a plea for God's salvation and mercy. To be cleansed of sin and its consequences is to experience joy and restoration. So these painful effects of sin are here equated with the crushing of bones. And since it is God who has done the crushing, clearly sin has damaged the psalmist in his relationship with God. And so he now seeks restoration of relationship. And he realizes the only way that's gonna happen is if God takes the extraordinary steps of hiding his face from his sins. To hide the face normally implies divine anger and rejection of the sinner. When God hides his face, David feels abandoned and distressed, but he pleads with God here, hide your face, not from me, but from my sin. Hide your face from my sin. His sins cover him. He's asking God to look past his sin. Do you, do you, are you beginning to resonate a little bit with David here? Are, are you beginning to relate a little bit? Like, do you ever have those moments when you say to God, God, look past my sin. I know this is not me. This is not who I want to be. Deep in my soul, this is not what I desire. And that's the part of my soul I need you to see. And that's what David is asking. Please don't define me by my sin. Look beyond my sin. See deep within me to see what my soul truly desires. Because if you look deep inside, you'll see that I truly do desire you. Such an act implies that God chooses not to take our failings into account, but to blot them out as David requests. 
And such restoration is entirely in God's hand and is predicated on his unfailing love and his compassion. Our forgiveness, God looking beyond our sin, is dependent on God's unfailing love and his compassion for us. So in verse 10, he says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. In these verses, David emphasizes the need for a transformed heart. He says a pure heart, a steadfast spirit and a willing spirit. And so these characteristics are indications of enduring change and transformation that provide them with firm foundation for the continuing relationship with God. So having undergone both an inner and outer cleansing as well as a lasting transformation of the spirit, David can now hope to be sustained by the lasting experience and presence of God. So this continued empowerment of the divine Holy Spirit and the renewed assurance of deliverance combined uh, to provide David a sustainable hope. What is the hope that he has? Hope is always something that we look forward to, right? Something is not, hope is not really present, right? Like when we say, I hope something happens, we're talking about the future, aren't we? Have you ever thought about that? When we talk about the hope that we have in Christ, we often think that it's something that we're experiencing in the presence and, and it sort of is, but as we went through the book of Romans, we saw this. We saw it when we were going through the book of Revelation that we were constantly being pointed to a future hope in Christ, right? We have this future hope. What is the future hope that we have in Christ? That Christ is not a liar. Our future hope is that everything that Christ said in the scriptures, everything that we read in the gospels is true. That we have a hope in Christ that we will pass through the judgment because of the righteousness of Christ. That's the hope that we have. And so it's a future hope. It hasn't happened yet. We're all still here alive, right? We're not sitting in heaven together, glorifying God together, worshiping. So it hasn't happened yet. We have not passed through the judgment yet. But that's the hope that we have. That's the hope that David has. He has a hope that God is sending a redeemer, a Messiah, that's going to cleanse his sin. And the hope that he has is that he will pass through the judgment into glory with Christ for eternity. That's the future hope that we have. Do you understand how important it is to know the scriptures, to know the character of God? That's why we get into the scriptures. That's why we know who God is. Because our hope rests in who he is. And the more we dive into the scriptures, the more it, it encourages our hope. The more it pokes at the embers of our hopes and it ignites that flame and it says, yes, I do have hope in who Christ is. I have hope that what he says is true. And then when judgment comes, I will pass freely through it because of the righteousness of Christ. On the other side of the curtain of salvation history, David feared being cast from the Lord's presence. Paul tells us in Romans that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul says God who gave the very best that he had, his son Christ, will not destroy us 
those who are found in him. I did not earn my sonship. And I can't lose my sonship. If I could, I would have done so already. I can't lose it because like David says, it's the Lord's salvation. And he who began a work in me will carry it to completion until the day of Christ. And to prove this, he's given us the spirit in full measure as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. There are two types, two different types of knowledge. There's notional knowledge and there's sensible knowledge. Notional knowledge is a knowledge that uh, that beheld, while sensible knowledge is a knowledge that's tasted. Think of telling a child the stove is hot. I have to tell this to my two-year-old all the time because he wants to watch every time we're cooking. He wants to stand up on the oven to grab the thing on the oven and stand on the little. By the way, did y'all know that that's a warming rack under there? It's not storage for your pans. Just figured that out. I always wondered why the pans were so hot when the oven was on. So he stands up on that little thing and he grabs a little oven handle and he, and he looks up and he wants to see and I have to constantly tell him when the stove is on. The stove is hot, you need to get down. So think of telling a child that the stove is hot and they may understand every word that you're saying. He understands hot, he understands what that means. He understands what the stove is. He could diagram the sentence and define each word at length. He couldn't really do that, but some kids can. But if by chance he touches the stove, now he possesses a knowledge that is sensible. So he goes from notional knowledge of knowing, okay, stove, hot, don't touch, to now he has a sensible knowledge. Okay, I know what hot feels like. I know what a hot stove really feels like. He's He's experienced the textured knowledge. So in the positive, if you tell, tell somebody that, that what the, have you ever tried to describe to somebody something that tastes really good, but they've never experienced it before? Like the peanut butter pie at Original Oyster House? Yum. Yeah, favorite. Birthday's Thursday, just saying, throwing that out there. See who's listening. Uh, so you, the taste of honey. You ever describe the taste of honey to someone who's never tasted honey? Imagine describing the taste of honey to someone who's never tried it. How would you describe it? You begin to realize as you try to describe it that there really are no words to truly articulate the sweet taste of honey. The situation that David's painted for us, he's given us an invitation. And he says the invitation in Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste, and that's what he's inviting us to do. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And like the man who has never tasted honey, you might understand the notional knowledge that the Lord is good, that he is powerful, that he became a man, that he died on the cross, that he rose again. Even Satan has this notional knowledge. But are we sensible to the Lord's goodness? Have we tasted the sweetness of his mercy? Has our thirst for acceptance and forgiveness been quenched by the crisp living water from the well of his love? Is our knowledge of God simply notional or have we tasted the goodness of God? the sweet mercy and grace. 
Theologian Brendan Manning said this, sheer scholarship alone cannot reveal to us the gospel of grace. We must never allow the authority of books, institutions, or leaders to replace the authority of knowing Jesus Christ personally and directly. When we operate from this base of knowledge, we become convicted and unpersuasive travel agents handing out brochures to places we have never visited. If we're not experiencing the goodness of God, if we're not experiencing the sweetness of the gospel, then how in the world can we describe it to others? If we have no idea. And that's what David is trying to do to us. He's saying, taste, experience this. Because once you experience it, it changes your life. It changes everything. Immerse yourself in the well of God's love. Find yourself engulfed in the river of life and drink all you can from it. And let it overwhelm you. Church, I I love David's honesty here. I love it because I resonate with it that there are times in my life when I stand before God and say, God, all I have is your character. All I have is your mercy and grace. I need to experience it. I'll be honest with you, I'm a hypocrite. There are things in my life that don't measure up to the gospel. And each time I find those things in my life, the sweetness of God's mercy tastes more and more sweet. Be aware of who you are. Be aware of your sin. And let your sin find yourself running to a God who cares deeply for you, who loves you so much that he gave the very best that he had so that you could spend eternity with him. And when you find yourself in the midst of sin, when you become aware of the weight and the gravity of your sin, find yourself on your knees surrendering before a holy God and taste the sweetness of his mercy. If you've not experienced that, if you've not experienced the gospel in your life, come talk to me or Brad, one of our pastors. Come talk maybe with the person that you came with. Because as David urges us, I urge you, taste and see There's no amount of knowledge. There's no books you can read. There's no classes that you can take and there's no pastor that can speak to you that can force you to taste the goodness of God. It's something you must experience for yourself. And when you do, oh my goodness, it changes everything. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the hope that we find throughout your word. We thank you for the grace that you pour out on us. The mercy that that wraps around us even in our sin and even in our brokenness. 
God, may we truly taste and see and experience your goodness. May we be overwhelmed by the love that you pour on us. May we find ourselves engulfed in the ocean of your love. God, may these passages give us hope. May it encourage us. May it remind us of how good you are. And as we sing here tonight, as we leave this place, worshiping you, may we lift this song to you, this song about your mercy. May we lift it to you as a reminder, even to ourselves, of the areas in our life where we need your mercy. May those things come to our mind. May we confess those things to you, Father, and may we worship you. Throw those things off through the power of Christ. God, may tonight be the night of salvation for some in this place. In Jesus' name.